There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, neither do I. You are tuned in to the Power Chord Hour right here on 107.9 WRFA, as well as on the Power Chord Hour podcast. How you doing out there? I'm your host, Anthony Merchant, here with you. Very excited for this one. Today's guest, we have original morphine drummer Jerome Dupree with us. They have, uh, if you are a fan or if you're not and you are uh, just discovering them, you're in luck. It's a good time for it because Like Swimming and their uh, final album, The Night, are both reissued and remastered on vinyl with some expanded uh, liner notes photos, interviews, lots of good stuff. So we're going to get into uh, all of that with Jerome. Jerome, how are you? I'm good. I'm, uh, I've am i been looking forward to talking to you. You know, I, I think the, uh, the one thing I will say, I mean, you know, these records are, you know, obviously Morphine, you know, not a new band by any means. But to be honest, I discovered Morphine earlier this year, and this is all still like it's fresh and new to me. So I'm very excited to kind of talk to you as like somebody who, you know, I'm sure you've talked about these records for a very long time now, but for me, it's like, this is, I like feel like I stumbled upon something brand new. So no, it's no problem. That's one of the coolest things about it. I mean, you don't, you never go in to make a record thinking, Oh, this will last forever or whatever. But, you know, we sort of did and under the genius of Mark Sandman, but, um, you know, people can come to this when they come to it, and there's nothing that sounds particularly dated about it. No. And that's something I'm real proud of, you know. And I turn people onto it all the time, and, you know, they're either going to like it or they don't, but there's no big deal if they don't. Do you, uh, and, and I mean, I would I would say so given that, uh, you know, the interest is still there with these reissues and everything, but I mean, yeah, as time has went on, I mean, have you have you noticed that people are still discovering it, you know, that it's not just people who you still hear from now who, you know, or maybe they're back in the day, are you, are you hearing from people, I guess, like myself, who long after the fact are still like, oh my God, like, I've, I've stumbled upon you way later. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, and, and Vapors has sort of helped in that sense of that you know, going out there and playing live, um, even though I'm no longer doing it, it's helped spread the word a little bit, but no, people come up to me. I mean, I, I don't get it a lot, but I certainly know of the phenomenon and that's great. How did the, uh, you know, going back with, you know, cause I know, I know even though you don't really play with uh, vapors anymore, you guys are doing that for quite a while. How, how did that kind of come about? How did you kind of start playing again, playing the songs of Morphine, how did, because, I mean, that that's still been going now since, like, what, like, 2009, I want to say, somewhere around yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, it was the 10th anniversary. Um, we had done uh, Orchestra Morphine, you know, after the night was recorded and Mark passed for the, the following summer in 2000, that record with a nine-piece band. And that group had played, uh, you know, various gigs um, since then, but was not super active. And then um, Dana got approached to do something for the 10th anniversary of Mark's passing in Palestrina. And he thought that rather than take the big band over, he'd, you know, like to do a trio. And some of the first people that he asked weren't available. And we had been playing with Jeremy not really doing any morphine stuff, but the three of us had been playing as a unit. Um, 
so he just kind of put it out to Jeremy, you know, would you like to try and play this stuff? And the answer was yes. And so, yeah, that's, that summer was the first time we played. Um, and we had a residency um, at a club in Cambridge for a while. And then uh, we first went to South America. Boy, I can't remember exactly when, but we actually went as a four-piece. Um, Billy went with us for that. Oh, nice. Um, but we did a lot of touring. I mean, I went to Russia twice with them and, you know, a lot in Italy. Um, so it was, it was, we didn't do all that much in the States. We did a few gigs around the um, screening of the movie. Um, the second one, uh, Journey of Dreams. Um, for a while, the director, you know, was showing it. He, he could only show it in limited function before it got released. And so we would go and play either the same night or maybe the night after it was shown. So that was about the most we did in the States, but um, South America and Europe were both pretty popular. You know, you're talking about like how it formed there. It almost sounds like it formed as, I don't know if it was a one-off, but I mean, basically did you, did you expect to do as much as you guys ended up doing? Cause I mean, that, that really did snowball into a lot from there. Yeah, no, we we didn't, and I wish, I wish we'd had the name earlier because the original name was, you know, members of Morveen with Jeremy Lyons, and it, it. I was thinking, I mean, I I'm surprised I couldn't come up with vapor because that's exactly what I was thinking of is some kind of fog or ghost or whatever, um, but we couldn't come up with it, and I think if we'd had the name, we might have had a little bit better luck. We we tried to tour the States and, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be like it was obviously, but we couldn't even, you know, we'd go to San Francisco and couldn't even sell out 300 seats, you know, and it was just kind of, it was really disheartening. We went out a couple of times and couldn't even break even on it. It was pretty disheartening. So yeah, we didn't really have any, any plans um, initially. Um, It was only when, the guy approached us about going to Argentina. That was like through my webpage. And, you know, I didn't think anything would come of it, but we started having the conversation and lo and behold, we went down there. So, and that kicked off a whole bunch of stuff. But no, when we started it, it was sort of just a one-off and didn't really have any plans to do a whole lot more. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, it's been going ever since. Did you guys uh, hit anywhere, you know, because, again, I mean, you hit so many places. Was, did you guys end up hitting anywhere that Morphine didn't hit during your initial run? Did you go anywhere that uh, the band didn't well, originally go? I think they'd been to Brazil once. I think they'd been to Sao Paulo, but they'd never been to Argentina or Chile. So those very first gigs, you know, we did three or four in Argentina and then went to Santiago that first tour was pretty short, but I don't think they'd ever been any of those places. Um, Everywhere else. I mean, Russia was definitely a new one too. In fact, there's a really interesting movie. I think you can find it on YouTube. Um, It's called bringing morphine. And we got to see it the first time we went to Moscow. Um, It's kind of a long story, but the people who had made it, it's a true story of, these three guys who tried to bring morphine to play in Moscow. Um, but it was, 
you know, the spring of 99 and right when they were ready to get it all done, you know, it was July 3rd and Mark had gone. So, but it's this amazing movie about their trials and tribulations of trying to put on this show. And it's not very long. It's like 40 minutes maybe, but um, that was pretty fascinating. Um, And no, we couldn't have been received better. I mean, I remember people saying, you know, do you know how important your music is to the people of Russia? (laughs) (laughs) To the Russian people. And I'm like, well, I guess I do now. (laughs) It was pretty amazing. But a lot of the other places, I mean, Italy and uh, Belgium and stuff like that, there might have been, you know, locations that they hadn't been, but they were certainly in the general area of places they toured before. That is, that is neat. You guys got to hit those some of those places because yeah, I mean, if you're you're a fan for all those years and you never got to uh, see Morphine, I mean, what a great you know to be able to get to see you guys later playing those songs. I'm sure they very much appreciated yeah, that. It it was it was it was uh, it was really nice. There was one guy. I think he's the head of the Morphine fan club in Russia. He took a train from Siberia 72 hours nonstop. <laughs> oh my god. To come see us. And that's just, I mean. That's dedication. It, it, it blew our minds. Well, you know, he is the, the fan, you know, he's the head of the fan club. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and then it was like, gee, do you have to buy a ticket? No, I don't think you have to buy a ticket. You know. And yeah, you might have Lisa earned your was, ticket. Right. Lisa was just uh, showing me as a memory. One of the times we went down to Sao Paulo um, we were playing outdoors and it was raining. So it was kind of iffy conditions, but these people showed up and stood around in the rain. But this one kid came up to us. We were hanging out. I think it was even before we played, we were sort of side stage, but you know, off the stage. And uh, this kid came up with just kind of a gleam in his eye, you know, and we said hello and he lifted up his shirt and he had a tattoo of you know the major part of his chest with playing cards and then in an old west font uh players win winners play have a lucky day <laughs> you know like like on his chest i mean Jeez. i was just like okay <laughs> as much as i've been into bands i've never wanted to do something like that so yeah i'm with you, know. you i'm with you there i love a lot of there are a lot of bands i love i cannot say i have a whole piece uh, dedicated on my chest to them Oh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, it was, you know, it was definitely an adventure and I'm really glad I did it for the time that I, I did. It just got my only, or my biggest problem in why I don't do it anymore. is just the volume on stage. Um, my ears, I've got really bad tinnitus and, uh, I wear super heavy duty earplugs. And unfortunately what that means is yeah, everything just sounds horrible um, and there's no real way to get it to sound better. And I just, while I could go out and play shows and I'm sure they were well received after a while, it just got to be a drain on me. So that was uh, the main reason why I stopped doing it. But um, it's fun to go back and sub. We've done a couple of gigs with Tom and me, which is nice because it's kind of like when Billy and I did those you know, we did a tour in the spring of 99. Um, I guess we were still working on the night, but the bulk of it had already been recorded. And we had done one show uh, in Chicago 
New Year's uh, 98 and 99, where I went as a special guest. And so they had this two-week tour down to Florida and back, and Mark suggested that we do the same format. So we did, and that was really fun. Um, so playing with Tom is sort of hearkening back to that. Um, obviously, I'd love to be playing with Billy, too, and, you know, miss him dearly, but it's uh, the way things go. Going back to the, uh, you know, I want to get back to the, like, early days of morphine. You know, starting out, did you, like, how well did you know Mark and Dana prior to uh, forming the band? I mean, did you know each other beforehand, or did you kind of meet through the band? No, I knew I knew Mark um, fairly well. Uh, I was a huge fan of Treater Wright, which was the band that he and Billy were in before that with uh, David Champagne and Jim Fitting. Uh, they were kind of like a modern take on a blues band, um, but they were they were really good, and I I was a big fan. So I knew Mark from that. I'd known Billy and Jim since the early '80s. Um, Dana, I'd known a little bit. He was in a band called Three Colors who were on the same circuit as a band I was playing with in the early 80s. So I met him in passing, and, and I knew the name, but I can't say that I really knew him. But, uh, you know, when Mark called and just said, oh, I've got this new instrument and I've been playing with Dana and, you know, we want to get together and see how it sounds. So it it wasn't like I was meeting those guys for the first time, but I didn't know Dana real well. You know, I, I something I'm always interested with bands, like, you know, kind of with how well you know what the, what it's going to sound like or what your kind of idea of what a band sounds like. Maybe with Morphine, I mean, what a unique sound. You know, I mean, it's so hard to, like, start at the ground floor, you know, for a foundation. I mean, early on in the band, you, like, how much of a vision would you say or a sound in your guys' head do you think do you think you had for morphine before you really started playing? Or, I mean, would you say that morphine found that, that morphine sound just kind of morphed from playing together? Cause I mean, again, it's such an interesting, it's such a unique sound that it's not like, you know, it's like three guys going in a room like, Oh, we're just going to be a punk band. We're going to be this or that. I mean, how did that no, sound kind of morph, you know? Well, I, I think Mark, you know, Mark came up with the, or initially it was just a single string on a slide. He had a, you know, really cheap, electric guitar and he put one bass string on and was playing it with a slide and that was the original instrument and then he got together with Dana and those two baritone you know along with his voice um, everything just seemed to work and so they called me and I remember um, I knew both from True to Right and from the Hypnosonics another band of marks that I had played with um, previous that he wasn't really a fan of uh, symbols, so that sort of set the tone. I remember I I can't remember exactly what I played, but I remember only having a floor tom and then bass drum and snare and you know maybe a hi hat. I don't know if I had. Eventually, I had a couple of small symbols at first, but in the rehearsal, I might have deliberately you know gotten away from them all together except for the hi-hat which i you know only used with my foot um so that was somewhat deliberate just in that i knew mark wasn't going to want a bunch of high end you know so it, it was fairly organic um and it was obvious that there was something there i mean we played we met at a rehearsal space that i had in everett 
at the time, and we played, and Mark had a couple of tunes, and Dana had one little sketch, and then, you know, maybe we jammed a little bit, but I remember we took a break, and we went out to get something to eat, and they, uh, Mark, I remember him saying Morphine, like he already had the name, um, so that was, you know, it was there right from the start, but uh, so maybe he had thought about it, you know, a fair amount or was, you know, thinking about it as it went. But for me, it was it was um, pretty organic just the way it came together. Um, but, yeah, it was a you know, there was clearly a vibe. And I remember the earlier shows at the Middle East, um, you know, it was clearly the band was you know we had a good crowd and uh it was well received so it just seemed like things were going to go right off the bat you know again like with the uniqueness of the sound of morphine you know those those early actually not even early shows i mean the entire time you guys played like you know i'm trying to think of who you would play with and again like getting into genres and stuff like that i assume you played a lot of like mixed bills where again i mean not a lot of bands to play with that sound like you I mean, like you were talking about with the reception there, I mean, did did audiences generally, when you were playing for, say, an other band's kind of audience, like, could you win them over pretty easy? Or were there times where, like, you did have to kind of win over audiences and stuff? Because, you know, again, it's well, like... Well, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. I remember some gigs in New York that weren't, you know, quite as well-received as, as up here. You have to remember, I didn't do the majority of the touring. Um, you know, I played a... We did a handful of gigs... Um, cause Mark was always busy with a bunch of other stuff and morphine wasn't his sole focus right off the bat. Um, so we went to New York a couple of times and we, you know, we played around Boston, but I didn't do the majority of the U S touring and stuff that they did after, you know, when Cure came out on Ryko and things really took off for them. So I can't speak to that, but in terms of what I did, you know, it was a mix. I can remember, like I said, some sometimes New York audiences are just too cool, you know, and uh, I think we came up against that once or twice. But, um, you know, the, the other thing we did right before I decided to leave was we did a short tour of California, um, you know, Los Angeles and then up to San Francisco and then back down and, um, you know, played in San Jose and Santa Cruz. And some of those gigs were really good. And, you know, pretty well received, if not super well attended. I mean, we played a big club in Santa Cruz and there weren't a whole lot of people there, but they were into it. And the gig in San Francisco was really good. All the tower people had come out because, you know, we had released good on our own on uh, Russ Gershon's Accurate Distortion label. And it had really gotten a buzz. So they brought a bunch of people down from Sacramento for that. So... I remember that as being a really special night. Oh, nice, nice. The you know actually like those those songs that made it on good. I mean, when you kind of look at the early stuff that the band was writing, like were were the early Morphine songs, like the batch of songs you guys written wrote, did those kind of make it on good, or were the songs on good maybe written a little after maybe the stuff that the band first wrote when you formed? No, I think that was pretty much the first batch. Um, I mean, they had done. I think Claire had been done by Tudor Wright in some form, you know, Mark was always, he'd, he'd write a song and then he'd play it in a variety of his 
you know, he always had a four or five bands at least. And he would play it in multiple situations and see which one it kind of um, fit the best. Um, and so I think there were some that I had heard before, but I can't really remember. But no, that's that was pretty much it, that first run. And then we did some covers early on. We did a couple of... Uh, Oh, no, I'm forgetting his name. Mose Allison. We did a couple of his songs early on to sort of fill things out. But no, Mark was, you know, writing all those songs. They were, you know, they weren't necessarily right away, but they were pretty soon after. For you, you know, I was kind of, this was like one of the, it popped in my head not long before we got on the phone. But, you know, thinking of you as the drummer, and kind of locking in with a, a with a two string bass, and you know the way Mark's playing everything, is it any with like is your approach? And I mean, you know, we were talking about cymbals, different things like that earlier. But I mean, that approach is it is it different? You know, with a rhythm section with something like that, in, you know, versus in a conventional band like locking in with say a four string bass or something like that. I mean, is it totally different, or is it is it pretty similar to how you'd play with most other bass players in a band? You know, for you as the drummer with that, I mean, how different was that playing with a two string bass, if at all? It was it was pretty different. I mean, the whole thing was really liquid. You know, you could like a lot of times when there was a new song, we would only play it enough in rehearsal that we could get through it without any like major train wrecks. <laughs> but the arrangement and everything would still be sort of up for grabs. So when we did it live, Mark might change the order of vocals, you know, everything was, was really kind of nebulous. And um, that was one of the fun things about it for me was that it could, you know, we could improvise on an entire band level, um, you know, in the moment, depending on just, you know, Mark would have some cues or it was just like, Oh, this is happening now, you know, because it did, and we were able to not freak out about it. Um, I think, in some ways, you know, Mark, his feel was generally really behind the beat, and I tend to be way on top. And rather than than train wreck the way it might be with a more rhythmic bass player, the fact that it was slide kind of maybe let the whole thing work. Um, I know in, in some ways, you know, playing with Jeremy, it's a, it's a different thing because even though he's playing the same instrument, his feel is very different. And in some ways I have to do the opposite. I have to sort of lay back more. Whereas, you know, with Mark, it was sort of like I would goose him or pull him along. You know, <laughs> I was sort of like, this is where it is. You know, I remember asking a friend early on uh, if I was playing too much and he said, "Well, someone's got to got to do something, you know." <laughs> so it was, you know, a lot of times on stage, and it not so much in the early recording of the things that are good, but certainly on Cure for Pain, a lot of those performances are very much like a live show. I mean, I was just, I had an approach to songs, but I didn't have a definite part per se, and it was always up. To interpretation and I could go with things in the spur of the moment as long as they weren't you know too wackadoodle <laughs> but um, you know some of the things that happened on Cure that are really special are simply because it was sort of like a live gig and we were 
you know, we were firing on all, all cylinders at that point, even though I already, you know, technically left, um, we had been playing a lot and we didn't spend a lot of time doing insane amount of takes. So it was, it was very much a live record in that sense. So I, I really enjoyed it cause I could sort of bring, you know, I enjoy a really wide range of music and morphine was sort of the closest thing I'd found that could do all of it under the same umbrella. For you, like, you know, because, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you're on the first two records and you came back for the night. I mean, I feel, I feel like you were you were still within the band on and off, like, for pretty much the entire existence, it seems like. So, like, I, I was wondering that, like, when you left the first time, like, did you did you have any inkling you would be? But, like, was it one of those things where you kind of went, but you kind of thought, well, I might still be back in the fold? Or when you left the first time, did you think that was it? You didn't really plan on, you know, kind of coming no, back. No, I, I, left, I left because of medical reasons. I had sort of an arthritis thing come up. And my hands got, you know, I was in a lot of pain. And playing just got progressively worse and worse. And. I finally just said, I'm going to stop playing until I can figure this out. Um, and even though Mark never quite understood that, I think the idea was that if I could get well again, you know, the gig was still mine. Um, obviously Billy filled in, in the interim and that led to a lot of confusion, you know, when the records got released and who played on what and yada, yada, yada. But, um, the first time was definitely like, no, if I can make it back, I will. Um, but if once I came back, then that was when things started to deteriorate between me and Mark. Um, so it wasn't, it was all within the space of a couple of years. Um, you know, I stopped playing in 91 January. We literally did a New Year's Day show and I just said, that's it. I've got to figure this out. And I didn't play again until the fall. Well, actually, I got treatment in the fall. I started playing in the spring of 92. And then we put out good. And then, you know, the West Coast tour and stuff. But by the end of 92, I was out. So it was it was pretty quick succession there. And then I, I really wasn't involved. I mean, I was always friendly with Dana and, and Billy. So I knew what was going on, but I wasn't really a part of things in that sense. Um, that only happened relatively later, like in the summer of 99, um, that I sort of came back. And, and then they floated the whole idea of doing the night with both of us. Um, so that was, and I'm glad that happened because, you know, Mark's and mine relationship was one of the most intense I've had, you know, outside of family members or my wife, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, if he had died without any reconciliation, it would have really been tough. Um, so I'm really glad we got to, you know, even though it was still a little awkward, we were able to get together and work together. Um, and I think the nights are really amazing record. I mean, to me, it's very different from all the others and, I didn't necessarily hear it at the time because the songs were, you know, a lot of them were really slow. And once we had an arrangement, we would play them for a long period of time, like just keep doing the arrangement around and around. 
and then Mark would go in later and sort of pick which one he thought was the best. Um, so I didn't really hear the finished album until it came out. Oh, really? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was it was really kind of vague as to what this was going to turn into. Um, you know, certain songs, I mean, I, I overdubbed on Take Me With You and Souvenir, so I knew a little bit more about what those were about. But a lot of things were kind of jammy. I mean, I always tell the story of uh, it was one of the first days that I went over there. And Mark's loft was always kind of cold. Um, so I was trying to warm up and I just started playing this beat and Billy joined in and we were just sort of jamming. But we didn't have headphones on. You know, we weren't recording per se. And Mark suddenly came you know, running out and put on his headphones and picked up his bass and, you know, told the guy to start recording and started playing and I couldn't even hear him. So we just hung on that groove until he felt like he had what he wanted. And that turned out to be so many ways. Oh, um, wow. But we had that drum track. I remember even like as the recording went on, you know, we had the drum track and he kind of had an idea, but he wasn't really sure how he was going to use it. Um, and I don't, <clears throat> I can't remember if what he was playing the first time was even related to so many ways. I want to say it was, but I can't remember. I just remember it being a pretty odd way to record a drum track. <laughs> how, uh, you know, those recording sessions for the night, I mean, was it was it pretty similar to recording the first two morphine records or when it you know or was it drastically would you mm -hmm. say the whole process was drastically different than the first two I think it was pretty different being that it was at marks and um you know the scheduling it it wasn't so formal I mean most of the stuff for good was done piecemeal you know we'd go into the studio and record a couple of songs um, and we did that on a bunch of different occasions. Cure for Pain for me was two and a half or three days cutting basic tracks, um, you know, with Mark. I mean, Dana was playing too, but some of his stuff might have been overdubbed after the fact. But I think the bass and drums were, were done together. Um, but that was, you know, one session concentrated. The night was spread over months, you know, and yeah, we would go in every day, but it was it was always questionable as to how much might get done in any particular, you know, whether we were working on a song we'd already done or whether it was starting new or whatever. It was, it was much vaguer in that sense and a lot longer. Um, obviously they'd, you know, they'd scrapped an entire record at that point that they'd already made. So it was, you know, Mark was doing it at home and, he was under a certain amount of pressure from DreamWorks and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it was, uh, it was a very different, different session. Um, you know, it's just a lot longer. The, uh, I mean, like when you did come back in the fold for the night, I mean, was it, were, were they already working on it or did you come in right at the, right at the beginning of writing that? Or when you no, they, they had been trying to record for a while and I knew through talking to Billy that they were, they were having trouble and Mark was, you know, blaming Billy for some of it. And I knew good and well, it wasn't his fault. Um, you know, drummers in that sense, 
a lot of times on rec- recordings they get you know they get replaced or you know it's it's the drummer's fault quote unquote um that was partly why i insisted on doing it with him um you know they they asked me to come back and play and there was one day when mark said why don't you just come in and we tried to do stuff you know just the two of us but it just felt bad to me on any number of levels <laughs> so i just kind of said no if 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 you want me to do this Billy and I are going to play and let's get Dana in here and, you know, let's play it as a band. And so that's what we ended up doing. Um, I never really felt like I was back in the band. I mean, there was talk of doing more touring in the summer uh, with the same format as, you know, special guest, but there'd been nothing floated about, you know, me being back and morphine being a two drummer band. Now, um, you know, we did the recording for the night and we did that one short little tour and the, the gig in Chicago. Um, but, you know, I remember just hearing that there was talk of going out with soul coughing, you know, later in the summer. Um, that, of course, you know, all went away on July 3rd. Um, so I've got to be, you know, clear about that. It was just, I did the recording, but and we did play some live shows, but it wasn't like I was fully back in the band. It was still a work in progress. How much How much of the material did, like, did pretty much everything you guys wrote for the night, you think, make it on there? Or was there a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that didn't make it onto the record that was written? Well, I don't know. Like I said, they had, they had um, <clears throat> shelved an entire recording that I've never heard. I think maybe some of those songs were similar. But, you know, Mark always had, like I said, he was always kind of putting lyrics with different music. And, you know, he was always experimenting with different things to see what would work. So there might have been a certain amount of rearrangement um, in terms of what they had tried before. But I, I don't know. I don't think he'd come up with an entirely new batch of tunes. But like I say, I don't know what they tried to record um you know with paul um that you know ended up not going anywhere um so i i can't really speak to that i was you know like i said i didn't know any of the tunes before we started doing them it was very different than good or cure for pain where i'd been playing those songs live before we ever recorded them um this was sort of figuring it all out as we went along. And, you know, like I said, the whole process was, wasn't necessarily vague, but it was just different. It was more experimental maybe in a way. Um, like I said, Mark had ideas, but he didn't necessarily have fully arranged songs, you know, and here's your part. It was just sort of make it up as we go along and see what works. I remember there was one track that we had similar to um, so many ways. It was, I think it sort of came out of a jam and there was either an odd meter in it or there was a part where the time kind of got turned around somehow. But I remember thinking it was really cool. And for the life of me, I don't know what happened to that (laughs) track. I remember thinking like, oh, this will be, this will be fun to work on. And then 
and it didn't really have a title, you know, it was just this musical thing, but I thought it was really cool. And I've never tried to go back through the archives and find it. Um, and needless to say, it never got used. So <laughs> that's the only one that I can think of that, you know, it was kind of like potentially something there that, that I heard that nobody else did or whatever. You know, maybe Mark couldn't come up with a song for it. I don't know. Maybe it was too, too fusiony for him or something. <laughs> but I remember liking it at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> it's floating out there somewhere. Yeah, there you somewhere. know, and, and there was the other one, the Pretty Face. I remember that came out on the Sandbox. Um, I mean, I know I played that, but I don't. You know, I don't remember that as being one of the tunes. Like I said, it was it was kind of vague for me. Not vague, but just uh, it was a discovery process, let's say, versus, oh, yeah, here are these songs and here's what we're going to record. It was more like, let's try to make, make this stuff happen. Kind of a little bit kind of going off that with songs. I can't take credit for it. I had a, I had a listener with a question that somewhat kind of goes off that. I'll give, give credit to Richard Datson here. But do you is there a song for you that brings back your favorite memory of uh, kind of writing and recording with the band, if you and maybe that's hard, but I mean, going going through, is there any that kind of stick out? Maybe it was a good process. Maybe just the song itself like conjures up good memories. Is there uh, any that from, stick out to you? Basically, the catalog from, from the night of the, the whole thing. The the whole thing, basically, he said the whole catalog. Well, I always I always point to Cure for Pain. Oh no, sorry, not Cure for Pain. Uh, Buena. Um, I don't play on the title track on that record but Buena we did um and as I remember it we went into the fort <clears throat> to set up and get sounds and then we were gonna officially be recording the next day and once we had everything up and running Paul Coldry suggested that we play something just to see you know how it all sounded together and my memory is that we kicked off Buena and I just remember like, yes, I knew it was being recorded, but I didn't really have that sense of like, this is for an album or anything else. And so I was, I was just sort of in the zone, much like I would be in a live performance. And there are things that happen in that, that performance that, I mean, I'd never done before. Um, and I remember we got done and Paul kind of went, well, I think he got that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> recognizing that it was a really good performance and I'm pretty sure we did play it again, but to my memory, that's the version that wound up on the record. Paul was probably the only person who could say for sure. And I've asked him and he's never, he's never said, I know you're full of it. So, you know, I'm, I, I go by that story just cause that's how I remember it. But um, that's always the one I, I point to just because it's such a, um, it's a really iconic performance for me. And, you know, when we started doing it with Vapors, it became that whole question because there are things in there that unlike like a Neil Peart, you know, I didn't play the exact same part every night, but when you're doing it live, you know that there are people in the audience that want to hear all that stuff. And so it was always sort of a dilemma. Do I try and recreate, you know, these really special moments that just happened on their own, or do I just keep playing the song in the same mode? You know, like I say, I had a, I had an approach 
and a general arrangement, but I never, it was never like every bass drum hit and every snare, you know, every drum fill was exactly the same. Um, so yeah, that would be my track. I mean, in terms of the night, probably the title track or so many ways, just cause it was so, you know, it was so different, but yeah, I think, I think Buena is really the best, you know, representation of a, of a lucky break and just, <laughs> you know, like I say, it was more playing live, but it's I that wasn't whole first take thinking, thing. It's the whole, like your first takes your best take a lot of times. Well, yeah, no, there's definitely that. And, you know, like I say, I was just sort of in the zone. I wasn't, I was just thinking about playing the music. I wasn't thinking about, did I do that right? Or, you know, am I speeding up or anything like that? It was just letting it rip. And, you know, I got lucky. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's probably something I didn't realize till a lot later. Like people sort of pointed it out to me like, Oh yeah, there's this hi hat thing, man. This is my favorite, you know? And I was kind of like, I don't know what it was. I never, <laughs> I didn't do it on purpose until that moment. You know? So I, it worked. I think it worked. I think I would say it worked. I think what you oh, did, yeah. whether you realized it in the moment or not, I'd say that, uh, yeah, it came out quite well. Was- yeah, no, I'm like I say, I'm, you know, the the session at the time for Cure was somewhat distraught, just in that I'd already, you know, left the band and I was coming back to sort of do Mark a favor, a little bit begrudgingly. And you know, I'm really glad I did in hindsight, but at the time it was it was a little rough. I just sort of remember having a you know attitude about let's just get this done, you know, so maybe that, maybe that aggro kind of made the songs spark a little more or something. But um, like I say, I didn't belabor, you know, we didn't do multiple takes of stuff. And I think I was done in two and a half or maybe three days um, with all the basics. They spent some time working on it after that, but my stuff was done, you know, early on and very quickly. Um but I think that lends itself, you know, I think that's part of why the record sounds the way it does. You know, as we, as we start to close this out, you know, again, talking about, you know, we got, you got quite the legacy here. I mean, we're the two, uh, you know, records being reissued and everything, you know, what, what would you say if you had to credit something, maybe it's hard being, uh, on the inside of everything, but the legacy of morphine, why it, why we're still talking about the band, why these records are being reissued and everything. I mean, for you, is there anything you could pinpoint or credit as to why this band has lasted as long as it has? I think it's just the uniqueness of the sound. I mean, you know, and you don't even really hear. I mean, there are people that have tried to sort of get a similar sound, but um, it's not like it had a huge influence in that sense. And so it's really still very much its own thing. And like I say, there's a timelessness to it. It, the sounds aren't dated, you know, technologically wise. It's not like gated reverb or any of that kind of stuff that decades later can just sort of be like a bad joke, um, or really date the music to the time it was recorded. Um, this doesn't really have any of that. And so I think, like you say, people discover it when they discover it and, it's, you know, it, it wasn't planned. <laughs> it was just simply, you know, Mark's, Mark's coming up with that sound and, and sticking to it kind of thing. 
but yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it's one of the funnest things about telling people like, you know, I tell people go to YouTube, do a search on morphine. If you can find Buena, great. But if not, anything you find is going to have that sound and you like it. Great. If you don't, no problem, you know, and then that's kind of genius. It's not like, Oh, here's this really great grunge band I was in back in the nineties. You know? <laughs> Sounds very much like it's era. You sound very right. much like 1993. Right. And you know, morphine was sort of, I mean, I've heard it said it was kind of an interesting take that, Morphine appealed to a lot of different people because it kind of had little bits of everything. You know, it rocked hard enough to be a rock band. There were vocals, so it was pop, you know, songs in that sense. Um, the saxophone and to a certain extent, the drums were jazzy in a, in a way. Um, so it kind of like, it combined little bits of a lot of different things that, different people could come into it liking it for different reasons. And I think that that makes a certain amount of sense to me. Um, but it's also cohesive, you know, it is its own thing. Um, I remember somebody just, I mean, it wasn't a gig that I was on, but he just said, he remembers going to see him and just the vibe was so unbelievably strong. You know, it was just like, it didn't sound like anything else. And yet it was, not like a bunch of, uh, you know, it was it was put together, it was played on purpose kind of thing. It wasn't like just some random thing. And, you know, that just really caught people. No, I got to I got to give you credit. I mean, that when I was telling people you were on, you were going to be on the show, I had a lot of people I never realized how many people I knew were such big morphine fans. But to what you're saying, I have to say, I can't put them all like they're very different people from very different musically, like people who right. never connect in anything. Like so many people told me, oh, I saw Morphine back in the day who like one guy's a deadhead. The other guy like was a punk, like all these different ones where like right. you're saying it's not like it was just one kind of it's not just like the record store snob like those are just the people who know you guys like everyone i talk to all different walks of life like all love your band and yeah i can't right. they, they don't like a lot of the same things you would be like the one common thing they could all agree on right no and that's like i say that it's just the luck of the draw i mean you know i don't think any of us mark included had any idea of something like that happening it was just you know, he was just following his, his muse and, you know, where his music took him. Um, and, you know, we were just along with that, but, you know, you don't sit there. I'm sure miles didn't, you know, when he went in to do kind of blue, he wasn't thinking like, Oh yeah, 50 years from now, people are still going to be digging this record. <laughs> you know, he couldn't have, I, I just, I think he just was doing what he wanted to do and, you know, he hit one. And granted, he did it a lot of different times, but, you know, it's still, you just, I don't think you can go in planning to have something like that be the case. You just can't, you know, any famous, I mean, painter, filmmaker, anything. I don't think you can know when you're making something. You might know that it's good, but I don't think you can know its timelessness. I don't think that can be you know, created on purpose, um, if that makes sense. 
Oh, no, I got to agree with you there. I think if you tried forcing, if you were all sitting in the studio thinking that we'd all be talking about this decades later, right. I don't think we would be talking about it decades later, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. No. And you think of all the records that were designed to be hits and were worked on extensively and went nowhere. And then other things, you know, that were just garage band. I mean, I don't know how far back your listening goes, but, you know, Louie Louie by the Kingsman. Oh, um, yeah. No, that's just a masterpiece. And I've heard, I don't know if this is true, I've heard that whole thing is one microphone. Oh, my God. Yeah, the whole song is one <laughs> mic. I I don't know if it's true. There's Dave Marsh wrote a book about the song that was really great, um, went back to all the history of, you know, Richard Berry and the Seattle and all this stuff. And But he spent, obviously, a long time on the Kingsmen and, the supposed dirty lyrics and everything else. And for me, that's just an absolute classic rock and roll recording, you know, and I was very young, but it was a current song, you know, and I've just always loved it, but I'm sure those guys had no idea. They were just lucky to be able to record it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's all being recorded on one mic. Same thing. Yeah. I don't think they're like, Oh yeah, this will be mentioned in, you know, we'll be still talking about this song decades and decades from now. No. Exactly, exactly. So, and there are a bunch of those. I mean, <laughs> Blue Cheers, Summertime Blues is another one. You know, it, it's just one of the greatest covers. And it's partly because there's certain, the opening riff, they can only play at one tempo. So it leads to these radical tempo changes as the song goes on. Because every time they come back to it, they have to like slow it way down. It's It's just classic. It's so... Californian, you know. Um, but I mean, there are a ton of them out there, but uh, I'm just glad to be a part of it. You know, we have we have these uh, two morphine reissues. Anything else? Uh, I mean, are you working on anything else at the moment? Anything else going on in the world of Jerome Dupree? Oh, God, for me, yeah, I'm, I'm busy like crazy. I'm uh, I've got a band called Listen to This, which is playing the electric music of Miles Davis. Oh, nice. Basically. Uh, in a silent way through his retirement in 73 or four, whenever it was, um, we're not doing anything later than that. So um, it's primarily in a silent way in bitches brew, but we have touched on some of the stuff after that. Um, but that's really fun. And, you know, we've been playing about once a month, maybe not quite um, and getting good response around Boston Um I don't think we'll ever record because there's kind of no point, but um, I would like to keep playing live and, you know, maybe get out and see other parts of the world. Um, but, you know, it's been really well received, um, kind of surprisingly to me, but I'll take it. So that's one thing. And then I'm, I'm playing with uh, David Champagne from True to Right. Uh, we've done a couple of gigs or we're doing a second gig uh, with Jimmy uh, fitting actually doing the tree to write material and that's always fun um i've got a improv band with dana collie and a guitar player named adam steinberg called effects of the sun and you can find that on Bandcamp. um and it is it's pure improv um adam just recorded our first gig and kind of edited it and made it into an album but you know, the songs that sound like we're going to ever play those songs again. So uh, it's fun. It's, it's improv, but it's not 
out, you know, jazz as a, as a friend of mine likes to call it pet shop on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do plenty of that in other settings, but um, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm busy. There's a lot of different things going on and I'm, I'm really happy with it. There's a band with Kami Lyle and Joey Scampanato for those of your listeners who are NRBQ fans. Oh, nice. Um, it's been just a, I keep pinching myself that I'm getting to play with this guy. It's, you know, beyond being a fan, he's just one of the most natural musicians and just a sweetheart of a person. And uh, it's a real honor to get to play with him. And uh, so I'm looking to do more of that. And what am I missing? I guess there is a certain amount of free improv, mostly with Joe Morris. Uh, the guitar player, bassist. Um, and a lot of that happens either in New Haven or Hartford, Connecticut, but there are a certain amount of gigs that happen around here. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm busy. You are, you're staying, I got, I got, I will be honest. I have a lot of projects to go check out. I got a lot of stuff I've not uh, yeah. checked out from you yet. I got to go check out after this. Um, you can, you can find more info on my fan page on facebook on yeah there's a jerome dupree fan page on facebook my regular page got hacked uh, a little over a week ago and so that's you know dead in the water i can't i can't get to it and unfortunately it's being used to try and defraud people out of money oh geez um but it's a it's a real drag so i may no longer be on facebook other than my fan page but you should get all the gig info and stuff like that from there all right, so we'll send, we'll send people there. If you're listening to the radio show, we will uh, play some Morphine Now. If you're listening to the uh, podcast, you got to go get those reissues and uh, listen to some Morphine. But, uh, Jerome, as we close this out, I mean, we miss anything? Anything else to uh, let the people know before we go? Just that I miss Billy Conway very, very much. And uh, I'm glad I got to know him and play with him as much as I did. And, uh, I just, I think about him every day. I'm looking at his picture right now and, you know, it's, uh, that's just a special one right now. So just got to give a shout out to the man. Well, Jerome, I mean, this is a total honor. I mean, again, like as somebody who, uh, is just finding all this stuff, which if you're listening to this and you also were a fool who, uh, not discovered morphine yet, do not, uh, do not sleep on this. But again, if you're listening to the radio show, we'll play some morphine now. If you're listening to the podcast, go, uh, grab some morphine. But I'm Anthony Merchant talking to Jerome Dupreme of Dupree of morphine <laughs> right here on the Power Court Hour.